So, Father, we we just come and bow before and humble ourselves before Christ crucified, seeking to not have a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes from you. Holy Spirit, I just ask for you to, to do the work that only you can do. Just to move on our hearts, to give us understanding in what the cross is and what you've done. We bless your holy name, Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, I was traveling around with the ministry, doing a lot of speaking. And, uh, and so when you get into the depths of your own pride, you, you start to start your messages with your qualifications, what you've done and accomplished. And I got pretty good at that. So today I'm going to just do the opposite of that. Um, give you my qualifications for the cross and the mercy of God. And it's that I have looked at pornography. I've committed adultery. I've been a drunkard. I've been a liar and a thief. But while I was that sinner, Christ died for me. No, what manner of love is this, that I would be called a child of God? And oh, what measure of love He's lavished on us. Take harlots and call us His own. I've judged the brothers next to me, and I've lived my life as a Pharisee. I've fasted and I've prayed in a spiritual parade for all of the world to see. And while I was that sinner, Christ died for me. <laughs> he takes scoundrels and sinners, low lives and failures. And makes us the joy of His crown. He takes the arrogant and the prideful, the self-righteous and false humble, and He tells the tax collector, come down. And though none of us deserved it, His life He gave it. He gladly laid it down. And now all our filthy garments are now red as scarlet, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And oh Jesus, please help us understand. Oh Jesus, please help us understand. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him? 
you know, it's kind of a verse we sing in the creation and things about God, and we sometimes flippantly just go past it. But I don't think it's a rhetorical question even that David's asking. His point is that he's having this tension within himself going, what is mankind that you are thinking about him? Why do your thoughts and all of redemptive history as a whole revolve around you redeeming men from the sin in the grave and giving them a place at your table? Why do you think about us, God? For him to think one thought about us is astounding. But for him to, to circulate all of linear time around the redemption of human beings is just utterly astounding. <laughs> and then to bring it to a personal level and to ask, what is Stephen? Who am I? Jeremy Johnson, what are you that he was mindful of you and brought you out of a life of drugs and addiction? John Harrigan, who are you? And Tim Miller, who are you that God was mindful of you? And what did any of us do to get into this room today? Which of us saved ourselves to bring us to this room and be filled with the knowledge of God or the beauty of Christ crucified? Which of us, through some obtaining of understanding, finally got ourselves to an atonement before God and were found righteous before Him? And the answer is none of us. I was, the Lord encountered me at a young age and just really shook my life with vision for the cross and what it is. I quickly turned from Him. Though in a youth group that prayed and fasted, I, I understood the gospel to a level and, and I did understand the cross just because of this encounter the Lord gave me. And, but... um. I was sexually abused by a man in my young teenage years, introduced to pornography around nine, probably. And so I, in engagement with pornography, this man began molesting me. And um, so I had this intense wound. In the midst of that, the Lord literally spoke my name one night. I, I heard a voice, whether it was an angel or the Lord, I don't know. And it was that calling of my name that just has kept me through the years. As I grew up, I was involved in a moral relationship, still calling myself a Christian, playing flippantly with alcohol and other things. And by the age of 22, 23, I'd, I'd full-on told the Lord I was turning to the world. And I did. And the darkness... That I gave myself to is still a haunting memory. I would lay in bed at night shaking, thinking my heart was literally going to explode, knowing I had done too much cocaine, and I would pray for mercy and say, God, please get me through tonight, and I won't do this again tomorrow. And I would do it again tomorrow. At the same time, my dad, who had, he was an alcoholic as I was growing up and addicted to marijuana. I hated him for it. 
So I had a lot of anger. But when I'm around 22, he decides that he's, he goes into a deep, dark depression based on understanding his own depravity. My dad always was very familiar with his own depravity. Anyway, he turns from the Lord fully, though he was a father that genuinely loved us, never did anything to us harmful besides his, his anger. He turns completely from the Lord and goes into the depths of methamphetamine abuse, pretty much leaves our family and lives out in the garage, loses his mind, and my family is at a place of a crisis. During that time, one night, I have this demonic encounter. I was drunk, high, and everything I could be, and two demons came to me, literally on both sides of me, and uh, they told me that I was going to die that night, that it was my night to die, and I agreed with them. I took a picture of myself on my phone waving goodbye. I sat down and I wrote a letter, and I knew that I was going to go outside, get into my car, drive down the road, and I didn't know what was going to happen, but they were going to take my life. Just terrifying experience. And I went out to my car, and I don't know how long I stood there, because it seemed it could have been about an hour and I was just in this daze, and I never got in. My friends suddenly showed up, were distressed because they could tell something was visually wrong with me. They took me inside. That was the wake-up call for me. I shortly went to IHOP a short time later, just for a random conference. And God, who had told me two years earlier, I want you to come here. And I disobeyed, brought me there. That was six years ago. About six months later, I got to go home and do a short worship set at my church. Keep in mind that my father was still in the, the funk of his life. My mom was ready to leave him. She had packed up one day and actually gotten ready to leave in the car. And, and I'm going to do this worship set. And my dad comes to me and says, says, you want me to come tonight? I said, yeah, I'd love for you to come. Just in a small room. And before the set, I was just kind of sh shaking a little. And I didn't even know what songs to do. And the Lord said, just, just get up there and just adore me. Just, just adore me, please. This was a church I grew up in, and no one showed up. I was a little disheartened. And I just started singing, Oh, come let us adore him. And I think I sang it for probably 30 minutes. And I began to watch as my father, sitting at the back of the room, just began to weep. Weep. And he weeped for just two hours straight. After the set was done, he came up, and I knew he just he wanted to encourage me. He didn't know what to say. He was still kind of teary, and he just said, I'll, I'll see you at home. <laughs> anyway, we didn't talk that night, but the next morning on the plane, I was flying back to Kansas City. 
And he called me and he said, son, he said, I don't know what happened last night. He said, I've never seen or experienced the Spirit of God moving. But last night I felt like 30 years of anger and pain just broke off of me in an instant. And from that moment on, my dad has fully turned to the Lord. He was restored. He had to walk it out, but <laughs> yeah, I think he's watching today. So, Dad, I love you. I'm proud of you. Oh, man. So when we look at the cross, I wanted to, I kept thinking of, man, I need a good story to talk about this. I need a good story of mercy. And God just kept saying, well, the one you know best is your own. So there you have the pearl of my life. I just ask for you to marvel at the cross, not trample it. So letter A here in our notes. The first point to make about the cross is that it simply happened. It was real and it occurred in real time and space. The magnitude of this event itself and its place in the history of linear time is astounding. To meditate upon the righteousness of God from the perspective of Him becoming a human like us, descending from glory and then showing us the glory of laying down His life is truly marvelous. Psalm 118 the stone that, that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was God's doing. His son being rejected was God's doing. And it is marvelous to who? To us. And we marvel before it. But the fact that the mere mention of the cross doesn't stir the deepest wounds of gratitude within us truly signifies our hard-heartedness to a basic understanding of God's mercy and really the, just the understanding of substitutional atonement, that we deserved that death, and Jesus took it. I put a few of my favorite verses here. When we look at verses like Colossians 2, Christ in Himself, Messiah Himself, in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Ephesians 1, the summing up of all things in Christ. Out of the utterance, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Christ and Him crucified. In other words, I don't care what you're saying, and I don't care what you're saying, and your theologies, and however you're leading me, I'm going to set my mind, my hope, to know one thing. God came, and He died on a cross. And this is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of God. So this begs the question, why is the cross and Christ crucified rarely preached or talked about? Why is it not the primary focus of the songs we sing? The central theme to which our lives revolve around worship music today really irks me because if you go into a standard church service normally, you're going to find a lot of songs that are <laughs> what John Piper calls chipper. <laughs> he says, <laughs> but we don't need chipper. We need the Word of God. We need Christ and Him crucified, magnified in the songs, so that we're reminded to come and bow low in, in humility before Him 
at the life we've been given. There's a time to dance and jump around, and I'm not against that. But mainly the posture of worship before our Lord and Savior is the one He embodied before us. Weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. The main wound of my life is to see a cross, read the crucifixion account, and no emotion whatsoever be stirred in my heart as if I'm reading a fairy tale. The desensitization of our culture and Christian culture specifically to what Paul calls the hidden wisdom, which is Messiah crucified, is simply tragic and actually keeps the glorious truth of the hidden wisdom hidden. Admittedly, God in His wisdom has purpose to be shrewd to those who are shrewd. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. So there's this hidden wisdom that remains hidden because we are completely desensitized to the cross, to the message of the cross. And actually, probably to us even, the message of the cross is foolishness. And the very next part is to those who are perishing. And so we should check ourselves when I read through those last chapters in the gospel, which if you're like me, sometimes you get to them and you either skip them because you think you're familiar with it, or you read through them really fast just so you can get through it because you're a good Christian and you want to make sure that you read the crucifixion account. And that's a problem within me. But yet we cry at messianic figures in movies. And when Batman flies off into the distance and lets the bomb explode and kill him, it brings tears to our eyes. So Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is typically taken out of context a little. The word is your eyes would be open to see the hope of his calling. This isn't the hope of your calling before the Lord. This is the hope of his invitation. Of what? That your eyes would be opened to see who? Jesus. That the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened so that you could see that through Christ crucified there's an invitation to receive mercy from God, turn from sin, and be saved at the day of the Lord. It's His invitation, and we're going to talk about Ephesians 1. So, Father, open our eyes. We humble ourselves. We ask for that hope to be revealed, the hope of Your invitation that men can be saved that a depraved man could be saved from the wrath to come. The definition of mercy here is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. <laughs> How beautiful is this? An event to be grateful for. This is just a standard Mac definition. Because its occurrence prevents something unpleasant or provides relief from suffering or eternal torment. And then their definition there, his death was in a way of mercy. <laughs> so even Mac's definition resounds the glory of Christ crucified. Performed out of a desire to relieve suffering motivated by compassion, which is what defines Jesus through the Gospels. He was moved with compassion. 
to properly understand the cross. And I believe that the main, one of the main things of why we don't is because we are completely out of touch with our own depravity, with how deep and dark and utterly wicked our hearts are. You see, I get this awesome topic to talk to you about today, which is mercy, <laughs> which no one in this room has exhausted, which no one in this room is an expert at. You're but a mere recipient and hopefully a giver of the same which you've been given. So the beauty of this topic, <laughs> it's funny, John Harrigan's son said to me a few days ago, he's like, can you play with me? I said, no, I've got to study a little bit. He's like, why are you, why are you going to study? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm talking at the conference this weekend. And he goes, you're talking at the conference? And I said, that's exactly right, man. I'm just as surprised as you are. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> because what qualification does the college dropout who was a drug addict playing music in the world have to do with God... You know, to him, I'm just a, probably a young guy that plays with them a lot, which is probably what I need to stay. Every man that has ever lived had one destiny because of Adam's sin. Inherently wicked because you are the seed of Adam. A lake of fire. Eternal torment, never-ending damnation. This was our destiny. There was no other destiny for any of us in this room. No other plan. Okay, when you sinned, when Adam sinned, and you inherently were born through your parents in conception, you were born as a seed of wickedness. Okay? You are inherently evil to the core, and Jesus is going to tell us that. There was no other story there was nothing you could do about it. Nothing. There was one timeline. You were born. Adam was born. Adam sinned. You were born. We were all destined for lake of fire. Every single person. Psalm 49.7 No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Who can go to God as a wicked man and say, here's the payment for this guy's sin. Let him off now. Psalm 89. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Henry, did you deliver your soul from the power of Sheol? That rhymes. Kind of funny sounding, huh? And he says, Selah. <laughs> He says this crazy verse, What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of hell? Selah. In other words, meditate on that one, punks. <laughs> meditate on the truth that you cannot deliver yourself. <laughs> that there's nothing from within you that is in inherently good. So here's what Jesus says, the natural state of the heart of man. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man 
That is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts. For from within, for from within you, when you woke up this morning, these things were trying to proceed out of your heart. Evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. These aren't the types of verses we like to meditate upon, are they? <laughs> Who goes to their quiet time in the morning and sits down with Mark 7, 20, and from that place engages God in humility? Normally we're thinking about the good deed I did the day before, thinking about the good sermon I preached last week. But the question is, why are we not waking up and nearly brought to tears, bowing at the foot of our bed and thanking God for the atonement? Why? This is the question. Why are we not understanding that every Christian, when you wake up in the morning, that you have not been fully sanctified saints? <laughs> that you are not waking up thinking perfect thoughts in theology and in loving kindness towards the God of all creation. Now, sometimes you wake up and the Holy Spirit's on you and you're going straight to prayer. But mostly, in your depravity, this is militating against your spirit every moment of the day. And if you're not checking it, you're going to do one of these things. <laughs> whether it's a thought, whether it's an action, whether it's a simple coveting. How about just evil thoughts? How about just sensuality? I relate to this woman in a more sensual way than I should. I'm a little flirty with this person. Slander. Envy. Pride and foolishness. I hope that you're like me and these things are actually things you realize that you do. Please, for the sake of the cross, relate to these things as true. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else. Your heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? <laughs> Who can understand it? And so when our thoughts are usually revolving around how good we're doing, God, God is saying, your heart is so desperately sick that you're completely out of touch with reality. You're telling yourself about your good nature and your good prayer time with me. And the problem is that you can't understand the cross that way. You can't bow humbly before it. Because it's actually, that can only after time, birth, pride. Birth, pride that ends probably in apostasy in the years to come. So, do you agree with this? That's my question today. Do you agree with this? If we looked at, this is what Jesus says. This is what God says. These are just a few examples. Do you agree with this? 
that you are depraved. Do you agree? Because if you do, then we can move on. If not, we should probably talk about it a little longer. This is the, the means by which we approach the cross. And we will never approach it and spend that first moment in the morning bowing low before it if we don't understand the depths to which God went to rescue His enemies, to rescue those who were at enmity with Him. So, Father, give us even deeper revelation now of this truth. Ephesians 1. You can go through all the theology of these chapters. Seems pretty obvious to me what the point Paul's making. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, just as He chose us in Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise and the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. And you were dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God... But God, the, the great transition in Paul happens there. This is what you were. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him. Oh, thank you. And He seated us with Him 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, which we long for, He might show us one thing, the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in His Son. So that in the age to come, we might simply sit in awe for millennia, realizing, understanding, the mystery was far deeper than we ever conceived. And that the grace that was shown us in the Messiah is something we will dwell upon for the ages. What is man that you were mindful of him. Colossians 2 says the same thing. I'm just going to jump to that diagram and emphasize it again. He blessed us. You were dead. He chose us. You were dead. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Messiah. You were dead. According to the kind intention of His will, you were dead. His grace He freely bestowed upon us. You were dead. The riches of His grace which He lavished on us. You were dead. He made known to us, the ignorant ones, the mystery of His will. You were dead. Can a dead man boast? Can a dead person brag? Can a dead corpse lift itself off the floor? Can a dead person feed himself, wash himself, give himself something to drink? This is why the embodiment of death as a hole in the lake of fire is that you actually are dead. Though alive forever, unable to do anything for yourself. Bill Weiss says in his teaching on hell, or Sheol, which, is, which will be a far greater embodiment in the lake of fire, that all he wanted to do was talk to one person. If he could just talk to one person, he would have some form of relief by just being able to relate even to the torment they were experiencing. And he knew he could never talk to a person, ever, He couldn't even talk. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. I'm going to play this out as the actual demand of mercy that rests upon each of us because we have been saved, because we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let's just go down to the uh, Passover story here. Letter 6. Just to highlight this truth. The beauty of God and His infinite mercy is that He gives a beautiful example of atonement. Salvation in Egypt. So He says, okay, gone through nine plagues. Pharaoh's heart's hard. I am going to strike the firstborn of the land. Okay, And this time I'm not going to give divine protection to you, house of Israel. So you do the same thing 
that the Egyptians do. I know you think they're more wicked than you, but you do the same thing. And imagine the eeriness of twilight at the first Passover. Okay, we're talking a million men or something on foot left Egypt. So imagine that all throughout this land, I guess they're mainly in Goshen, so all throughout Goshen, in the streets, it's twilight now, because God said, kill the sheep at twilight. And you've got a man down here holding his sheep. He's about to kill it. The sun's set. And he looks down his street, and you can hear all across the land the bleeding of sheep. Meh! Meh! Just all across the land is one million sheep in unison, and in a chorus, are about to be slaughtered. And as the earth turns and the sun disappears on the horizon, the sheep's wool would glisten in that strange light of twilight, and they would silence the bleeding animal with a single stroke of their knife. Then after draining its blood into a bowl, they would go and apply the blood over the door of the house and have faith that when God walked by later that night, their firstborn would not be killed. I mean, this is the most intense situation you can picture. He says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is God's idea of the substitutionary lamb that we find in the cross. God decreed the firstborn in the land of Egypt will die, barring none. God would not intervene upon His decree with favoritism, nor would He break His word. He would only look upon the substitutionary lamb's blood upon their door and then pass over that particular house because the lamb that had been slain had become the substitute for the firstborn in that household. God said, if you kill a lamb for your household and put it over the door, that lamb just became the substitute for the son in your household that is supposed to die. This is the concept of substitutionary atonement or vicarious atonement. That you are supposed to die. That your destiny was lake of fire. But you apply the blood of Jesus. You don't go into the house that night not having applied the blood. You don't go into the house just having faith. Oh, well, I'm a good person. Oh, well, I've followed the God of Israel all my life. I don't need to put that blood over my door. You were, you were smitten. That night you were killed. And so it's inherently in the blood of Jesus. And nothing else because that is the substitution for your death, your sin. He was the lamb, our Passover lamb. You, you apply the blood to the doorpost of your heart. And upon that day, if you've applied nothing else by your works or boasting, you're delivered when God walks through the land again. I really want to push in a Gentile inclusion, but for sake of time, I'm not going to. Basically, you get into the middle of Ephesians 2, and Paul says, And you Gentiles, you deserved a double lake of fire. 
because you were separate from the Messiah. You were without hope. Can, I, can we put that? Here's a, a timeline that a few guys and I worked on. Simple diagram to say, look, this is what belonged to Israel. This is the promise of faith in Messiah. This is the promise to Gentiles, Ephesians 2 and Romans 9. They parallel each other perfectly. And, it, and the means of Gentile salvation is that we are grafted in through the cross, right? Because Isaiah 42, behold my servant, who will go as a light to the Gentiles, and he will bring salvation, okay? So through the Messiah and the Messianic seed, you push forth to the two arrows, which is the day of the Lord, in which all men are saved. There's more in it. I encourage you to study that. But when we think about it, that it's a huge topic. I mean, we could spend a few hours talking about Gentile inclusion. And we need to. Jimmy Shear is going to talk about it a little more tonight. So in the Gospels, you have context of uh, Gentiles being saved. Just a few examples, like the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus says, you're a dog, and I'm not here to give food to the dogs. She says, you're right. You are right. I'm not of the house of Israel. I'm a Gentile. But even I will take the crumbs from the master's table. And he says, woman... You just interpreted the Messiah correctly. You just grafted yourself in through the Lord of glory. Through your faith, you just interpreted that you deserve the lake of fire, that you're a dog, absolutely having nothing good in yourself, but you'll take the crumbs. You humbled yourself before me. You understand the Messiah. Enter into the kingdom. So the all-encompassing story that I love that rarely gets talked about is Mephibosheth. You have Mephibosheth as an infant after Saul is uh, killed in his last battle. His nurse, after hearing the news, goes to run out of the house. I guess it's fleeing in the area of the battle or some kind of context like that. Drops him. His legs are broken. He's lame. And he's living in the land of Lodabar. Some... 15 years later or something. Lodabar means no pasture, desolate, outside the city, in other words. The area where you put the people that don't walk, that have leprosy, the people no one wants to talk to. David, after becoming king, now who after becoming king goes to his throne and begins thinking, most kings go to the throne and begin thinking of the enemies they need to execute. David, through the hand of God, does bring peace to Jerusalem by that means. But he sits on his throne and he says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I can honor? And someone says, yeah, there's that guy outside the city, you know, in the land of the cripples. He's out there, he can't walk. David says, yeah, bring me him. And the thing about Mephibosheth is if you can't walk, someone had to go and literally carry you 
So he's probably being dragged with his lame legs into the presence of David, the king of all of Israel. And he can't stand there, so all he can do is fall on his face. And he says, what do you want with a dead dog like me? And this is the question of which our devotion with the Lord of glory should revolve around. Picked up, brought into his presence, set before him, and then he says, you're going to eat at my table forever. Right here in the king's presence, you now are going to eat forever and you will be called blessed. Just the beauty of this story. I want to end with the demand of mercy that is required for Christians. Because Jesus truly does make it a salvation issue. So now we've hit our depravity, the desperate need that we have with no hope of anything else. If we do not receive His mercy put ourselves before the blood of Jesus, apply it to us, we will not be saved on the day of the Lord. If we approach with works in any form of boasting, you will be brought low on the day of the Lord. There's the blood of Jesus and nothing else. That's the beauty of the cross. It's the beauty of being a Gentile. It's that you had no other destiny except like a fire. And but God brought you near by the cross and grafted you in to the Jewish timeline, to the timeline of faith, to the Israel of God. The mercy that we've been shown on the cross demands, demands that we forsake all other callings in the wake of our true calling to show mercy as we have been shown. This is where the church is in a crisis. We have the strong voice required for salvation is merely having faith in the atonement. This is true, but it can become a rhetoric of once saved, always saved. It's a piece of the pie, but not the whole pie. We have James that says, faith without works is dead. And that's in the very context of giving mercy. He says, for judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Then he says, you show me your faith, and I'll show you mine. You don't show mercy to your brother. You say you have faith. I'm telling you, your faith is dead. But the faith that I have, I understand there's a judgment coming. I'm showing mercy to my brother. And that is inherently the value that I understand the atonement and my faith is upon it, upon it because I understand mercy. Does that make sense? Sitting about signs and wonders. Very clearly it would be completely weird if James suddenly said that. Context of giving mercy. So giving, so faith in the atonement combined with the outworking or product of your faith is proof that you believe in the atonement. Jesus hinges this upon mercy we show to others. Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Hans articulated yesterday that blessing in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is equated with the day of the Lord and being blessed and inheriting eternal life. So if you show mercy during this life, you will be shown mercy. 
at the day of the Lord. Matthew 18. Parable of the unmerciful servant. You know this parable. He owed five million dollars. The Lord forgave him. He went out and strangled the man that owed him twenty. And this is what the Lord had to say. His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. We need to tremble. Friends, we need to tremble. The church needs to tremble. Because our once saved, always saved faith that we say we don't have is vehemently opposed to this concept. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. I'll just let you reckon with that tonight at the solemn assembly. If on the night of Passover, I already talked about that. So letter E, Jesus makes it simple for us in his equation of mercy with forgiveness. Forgiving someone, releasing someone from their offense and loving them regardless of what they've done. But he makes it a salvation issue. And we need to reckon that in our hearts. And this is why. I'll just read this. Beloved, there is another Passover coming. The great Passover, if you will. It's called the day of the Lord. This time the Lord isn't going to covertly pass through the land and kill the firstborn at night. After plagues very similar to the ones released in Egypt, seemingly released by the two witnesses that will be prophesying until they are killed and raised up to God, there will come the crescendo of redemptive history. The sky will open as a scroll, and men will see the Son of God. Maranatha. Descending through the heavens, his eyes of fire will again search for blood as they did that night. The blood that he himself shed. And upon those whose heads he finds it, an immediate resurrection will take place. And those will meet him in the clouds. However, upon those whom the blood is not found, there will probably be something likened to the sound of those bleeding sheep at twilight in the hands of their executioner. The tribes of the earth will mourn just as a sheep did on Passover. And this time it will be their blood that is spilled, not his. Not his precious blood again. And they will be dashed to pieces as the potter's vessels. And this is the righteousness of God. The mercy of the cross is a simple mercy. We have simply been told how to avert this great destruction. After the cross, we are in, we're in this age of mercy where the Lord is tarrying. Why did He not already return and judge everyone? Why did He not already destroy the wicked? He's tarrying because He wills that none would perish. This horrendous judgment, we simply apply the blood of Jesus. This is how we avert it. To the doorposts of ourselves, our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our souls. 
We apply His blood. And then we live in a way not to spill it again through fleshly pursuit or, or unmerciful lifestyle, but in reverence of His mercy, in all of His grace, esteeming always His majestic gift to mankind. The beauty of the character of God is that always within judgment, there is this hope of mercy. So it is with the cross. Within the fiery torrent, an expectation of eternal punishment in a lake of fire is the simple means for man to escape if he will cast himself upon that object of mercy. It is in the clinging to the bleeding feet of our master dying on the cross beam. That the helpless child, left beaten and wounded by the world at large, finds comfort. Yes, an eternal justification in those drops of blood. So it is that we must become converted to this childlikeness, this desperation, and total helplessness if we become separated from those bleeding feet. May we always find ourselves there with all of our attention directed to this King of glory as He willingly succumbs Himself to a human death and embodies mercy before our eyes. It's here that we define mercy. It is here that we understand grace at the foot of the cross with the feet of Jesus clasped lovingly in our hands to weep perpetual tears of gratefulness for the gift we have been given though we were dead. Though we did nothing to attain it. Though there was no philosophy that could reward us with it. There was no human knowledge that could lead us to it. We were truly hopeless, utterly helpless, and God was mindful of man, initiated our redemption from within Himself. To see the cross or His mercy in any other way is to dilute its glory. It is to dilute its glory, its heresy. To add to His mercy is to boast in works in which the fiery torrent awaits such as these. It is great vanity pitted against great mercy to do so. Simply since all men are foolish, it pleased God that through foolishness the means of the cross be made apparent. The uncircumcised Gentile has received a circumcision of the heart, a circumcision that cannot be undone. So stop regarding man whose breath is in his lungs. Beloved, stop regarding man whose breath is in his lungs. All things have been made yours in Christ. Do not be taken captive through the empty philosophy of vain man. And let no one defraud you of this glorious prize. The free mercy of Christ crucified. His blood alone. Freely we have received. Freely we should give. For it's for liberty that Christ has set us free. So Jesus, we humbly bow. We want your conviction. We want the fear of the Lord. Just say that out loud. We want the fear of the Lord. God, we want the fear of the Lord. We want to be shaken about the day of the Lord and not consider it as something arbitrary that we will pass through with no problems. But we have hope and boldness to stand before you in the blood of Jesus. 
By that blood we approach you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.